The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition Sox Machine Live. I am Josh Nelson, alongside the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It is Jim Margulis. And also joining us is our good friend from the 108. It is Beef Loaf. And we are streaming this live on our YouTube page on January 19th, 2022, which you can subscribe to our YouTube page at youtube.com slash Machine. And for those that are listening to the audio only version of this episode on the podcast, uh, we are going to be as descriptive as possible as we go through our mock trial as we discuss the MLB CBA. Beef Loaf is a brave man. He is serving as the Major League Baseball owner's proxy. And you volunteered for this, Beef Loaf. So what are you thinking here representing the owners? I was thinking that I've spent uh, 21 years in corporate offices, and I think I can talk the talk of of what the owners might say in a negotiation like this. I thought you were going to say, I spent $21 on this suit, and I'm going to wear it. (laughs) Come on now, Jim. A a little more, even on the tie. (laughs) Uh, and I will be representing the Major League Baseball Players Association. So I say mock trial because in reality, the MLB and MLBPA CBA negotiations are not in front of a courtroom. They are in hotel conference rooms in which many of us cannot afford to stay at these hotels. A uh, double and, tree. And, like a double tree. <laughs> And they are going back and forth, sharing as far as their proposals. Lately, a lot of the meetings have just been over Zoom, so they're not even meeting face-to-face because we are still dealing with COVID. But for this episode, Pat and I are going to – Beef Loaf and I have to take a drink now. Beef Loaf (laughs) and I are going to go back and forth uh, as far as the things that we want to discuss that are really the breaking points right now in this lockout. The things that we do agree for both sides is expanded postseason. I think Beeflo, if you and I both agree, the players and owners would be good with a 17 playoff for each league. And we both agree that universal DH is going to be happening. There's no arguments from the owners or no arguments from 
the player side and to help us mediate as far as our back and forth during the presentations, maybe also following up with questions about our proposals uh, and try to help us find middle ground is going to be our judge. And that's Jim Margulis and Jim, from a judge's perspective, what are you anticipating to see from beef loaf and I, I want to see good faith. That's been in short supply when it comes to how the previous CBA was handled. And, uh, you know, I think there's room for uh, a lot of common ground in terms of, you know, the game is on solid financial footing. You know, there, there's no risk of contraction. There is actually expansion on the possibility. There's uh, flush with cash from all sorts of different sources. Every team is healthy. So there should be ample room to, uh, you know, to tone down the rhetoric and, and find uh, a fair amount of common ground and in, in, in ways that we haven't seen play out in public. All right. So let's get this started. So I will begin uh, as far as the players association and some of our critical uh, as far as items that we do want to point out. And the first thing is a path to free agency. 720 players appeared in a game during the 2021 season. And almost 37% of Major League Baseball position players in 2021 were between the ages of 26 and 28 years old. This is often known as the prime ages of a player's career. Almost 25% of Major League Baseball position players last year were between the ages of 30 and 34. As you see in the graph, there is a very noticeable decline from ages 31 to 32. And that is something to keep in mind as we continue in our presentation, what is important to us. We are seeing fewer and fewer players past age 32 continue playing in Major League Baseball. For Major League Baseball rookies, there were 202 rookies last season. 51.4% of those players were between the ages of 24 and 26. When you compare that five years ago in 2016, the largest age section for rookies were between ages of 23 to 25. And instead of continuing to see that five years later, we are starting to see it slide, as in we're seeing older players reach the major leagues a year or two later than we saw five years ago. We as the Players Association believe this is done on purpose as Major League Baseball front offices are aiming to pay as little as little as possible during a player's prime years, whether paying them the league minimum or paying them an arbitration level one or arbitration two salaries to get the most performance, pretty much their most bane for their buck for these players. In 2016, uh, most rookies would eventually hit free agency between the ages of 29 to 31. Today, that is a year older, which most rookies would, would reach free agency between the ages of 30 and 32. As I mentioned before, we're seeing a significant decline in the amount of players still playing Major League Baseball from ages 31 to 32. We find that to be very significant, even though it's just one year difference from five years ago. Continuing on as far as ages, the path of free agency, the five-year difference. In 2016, the amount of players in the game for position players between ages 23 to 25 were 26% of the player pool. 
Five years later, it is below 21%. So we have seen a 5% drop-off in five years of the amount of players at ages 23 to 25 in 2021. This really stems from the blueprint that was provided by the Chicago Cubs on their way of winning the World Series in 2016 in their rebuild efforts led by then-executive Theo Epstein and current Chicago Cubs GM Jed Hoyer, in which tearing down the current roster, trying to lose as many games as possible to enhance their draft pick position and restock the team with younger players has influenced other teams that are currently doing this today. And in the last five years, we have seen many of these teams successfully complete their rebuild by winning world championships. It has been successful in earning championships, but it has created great division between the organizations and the players themselves as they are manipulating a player's service time and preventing them from either hitting arbitration or even hitting free agency. The path to free agency, this free agent class for the position players, as you can see in this graph based on age group, there are 110 position players who declared free agency. 49% of those position players fall in the ages of 30 to 34, and only 10% of the free agents are between ages 26 and 28. So by the time most players even hit free agency, they're entering an age group in which current Major League Baseball front offices have little desire in signing them and continue to pay them, especially past age 34. So that limits the ability that these players can earn, even reduces greatly from the earning power they had just five years ago. So the Players Association proposal, as far as a path to free agency and the things to change in the CBA... Today, front offices are delaying when players reach the majors to control the cost, preventing them to reach free agency before age 30. We find the age 30 to be a significant point. We want this to move at a younger age. The Major League Baseball Players Association is seeking to adjust team control to allow more players before age 30 to reach free agency. Understanding that owners and the league find this to have a possible impact on small market franchises. The Players Association is introducing restricted free agency and to incentivize teams to call up players earlier, especially before age 24, the Players Association is open to granting a six-year control that the salary will be determined in arbitration. So our full breakdown and what we are seeking from the owners as far as minimum wage payouts is that rookie seasons are paid out at $650,000. The second year will be paid out at $1 million. And the third year will be paid at $1.5 million. There will be incentives with these salaries. If a player in their first three years wins rookie of the year, MVP, and Cy Young, they automatically earn these incentives tacked on to their base salaries. When they enter the fourth year, that will be their first year of arbitration. When they enter their fifth year, that'll be their second year of arbitration. Again, the age, and we are looking at age 24 here. If a player is called up to the majors and starts accumulating service time before the age of 24, 
that team can be granted a third year of arbitration when they enter their team control sixth year. However, if a player is called up past age 24, when entering the sixth year, that player can is eligible for restricted free agency. And we view restricted free agency working as the current team can match any term sheet that is offered to the player. The minimum amount of years offered to restricted free agents by other teams is at least two years. It is a 15-day period after the World Series for the restricted free agency window, and the current team has up to two days to match the offer sheet. If they do not match the offer sheet, that player signs with the other team. If the team does offer does match the offer sheet, the restricted free agent continues to play for the team that they're currently on. If a player is not offered a term sheet and its current club has no interest in signing that player, that player becomes an unrestricted free agent. Replacing the qualifying offer, we want to introduce a franchise tag. For small market teams that are concerned losing their best players, that every team will have the ability to apply a franchise tag. It is a one-year contract that pays that player based on their position group within the top three of the entire league. And in the next slide, you will see as far as a further breakdown on an example using the Chicago White Sox as far as our plan. On the left-hand side, you have Andrew Vaughn, who his rookie season was age 22. And on the other side, you have Gavin Sheets, who is also a rookie at age 25. And their salary breakdowns are the same through the first three years. Because the White Sox called up Andrew Vaughn before age 23, they will get a sixth year of arbitration when Andrew Vaughn reaches his age 27 season. However, when Gavin Sheets hits his sixth year, he's eligible for restricted free agency, whereas Andrew Vaughn will not be eligible for restricted free agency. So for the, the White Sox, they would have to wait to see what offer sheets are given to Gavin Sheets before deciding if they're going to match that offer sheet or not. Now for Andrew Vaughn, if the White Sox would like to keep Andrew Vaughn for a seventh season without a new contract, they can apply a franchise tag, which then that means for his seventh season, Andrew Vaughn is paid in the top three first baseman salaries in all of Major League Baseball. And the franchise tag values for this upcoming season, as example, are displayed as far as in our presentation. Catchers, that would be $18 million for a season. First base, $21 million. Second base, $24 million. Third base, $32 million. Shortstop, $33 million. Outfielders, $28 million. Designated hitters, $19.5 million. Starting pitchers, $36 million. And relief pitchers, $13 million. And that is our Players Association proposal to address the path to free agency, arbitration, and minimum wage. I have a few questions and comments. When it comes to age 24, you, you talked about the uh, you, that age being important and how the age in 2021 shifted ahead. Gavin Sheets, I would use as an example of perhaps the age being skewed by the circumstances of the 2020 season because he lost his entire age 24 season. Uh, when you look at his uh, the way he matriculated up the ladder, he spent a year in Kannapolis, a year in Winston-Salem, a year in Birmingham, then a lost year, following year, half year in Charlotte, half year in Chicago. 
So that's a case where it seems like he was handled on an appropriate timeline based on his performance and his development. But losing the entire 2020 season, um, you know, just made that 24 age 24 year basically non-existent. And so I'm wondering, when it comes to using the 2021 uh, ages as a sample, is it skewed by perhaps all of these players aging in place in the minor leagues to where the rosters at Charlotte, Charlotte and Birmingham had the same players, but a year older? And players who might have been 22, 23 trying to make their way up had to start one rung down because of all the players who were backlogged trying to get in an actual season after missing the entire 2020 year. Yeah, that, that's a very good question. The way that we look at it from the Players Association is that, yes, many players lost an entire year of competitive baseball. Moving forward, we don't want that to be used as an additional year of service time. The players we do not represent, the minor leaguers, are currently under control for up to seven years uh, before they reach the major leagues or they become a minor league free agent. We don't want teams to continue using 2020 as an ability to manipulate service time. It's not Gavin Sheets' fault that he missed the entire season. We Everyone's dealing with the pandemic. But that doesn't mean that Gavin Sheets should still be under team control of the Chicago White Sox to his age 31 season and then become a free agent at age 32. And as I've already presented, the chances of him being able to continue his growth as a player within the league drastically drops, and it really limits as far as his earning power. So even though the players like Gavin Sheets had lost an entire season, and now they're in their mid-20s, we still, we still feel like it's fair that they should have the opportunity to reach free agency before age 30. Okay. And when it comes to the age 23 cutoff for the extra year, is there a minimum amount of time that player can be up or could teams manipulate that in terms of like they see a 24th birthday come up, they say, let's call them up for a week, then send them back down for two years. And do they still get, how, how do we prevent teams from manipulating that age just by using an emergency call up purpose and then sending them back down after two weeks? That, that is a good question. We would look at it as a full year of service. So if you do call them up a day before their 24th birthday uh, and they accumulate the full service time, they are able to play a full season. We can't control birthdays. Uh, but if they were able to do that, then that player, even though they turn 24 the very next day, still will not be eligible for free agency or restricted free agency. We're hoping that these cases are very few, uh, as I don't have all of the birthdays memorized of all the clients for Major League Baseball Players Association. Uh, so I don't know. Good going on that. <laughs> I don't know how large of a pool uh, that is, um, but that could be an area where we do need to have a conversation on what constitutes as a full season. Uh, currently, we do it as far as the amount of days uh, within the major leagues. Uh, but that is a good question. But, you know, we expect Major League Baseball front offices, whatever we propose, are going to try to find loopholes and ways to find, you know, try to find ways to manipulate how long they have control of a player. Okay. And that the franchise tag idea is that does that transfer with a player if he's traded? That it does not. 
Uh, much like the qualifying offer that does not attach to a player if they are traded midseason. If a player is traded midseason, they are not eligible for the franchise tag. It is only for a player that stays with one team for their last year of their contract where they're eligible to be franchise tagged. Okay. So it, it's it's like the uh, you know it, it's like the qualifying offer in that if he's traded before the start of the that fifth season, the franchise tag moves with or before that, but anytime after the fifth season starts, it does not. Correct. Okay. Do you see a meaningful difference in how the franchise tag acts as opposed to like a highly compensated final year? of arbitration, like I'm thinking like Chris Bryant, Mookie Betts, where teams like the Red Sox and Cubs, even like deeply pocketed teams, uh, like like those clubs still felt the need to get out from under that contract. The way we look at the franchise tag compared to the qualifying offer, uh, as arbitration is a very dramatic process right now, and something that I think both parties would like to avoid moving in the future the franchise tag, we view it said the qualifying offer, which is set by the league and there's small increment increases that it doesn't matter what position that you play. Everybody receives that amount of salary for some players, you know, $18.7 million is great. That's a huge boost and probably puts them in the top one or two within their position group getting paid overall. For some players, $18.7 million is well below their market value in free agency if a team would like to keep their franchise player they should be paying market rate for that player so instead of the qualifying offer which often comes with a draft pick compensation which we don't think is also right and we'd like to eliminate from a players association perspective franchise tagging that player should pay them in the top three and if you're already franchise tagging a player that's already paid in the top three, for example, using Mike Trout of the Los Angeles Angels, you are not going to pay him third overall as far as the outfielder because he's already the top three. You're just going to continue what you paid him the previous season. So we view this as an opportunity for small market teams that maybe can't afford a 200 or $300 million contract, but they'd like to hold on to their franchise player an extra year this gives them the option of doing so but making sure that their franchise player is actually paid like a franchise player and a franchise tagged player can be traded a franchise tag player can be traded so at the beginning of this before the season in the offseason if you franchise tag that player and come june or july you're out of the race you can trade that player but that is their salary for that season and even in the offseason like they can franchise tag them in october or november and trade them in december Sure. Okay. But that is their salary though. So whatever team that trades for them, they are inherited that salary. Okay. Those are the questions I had. All right. That is our presentation to tackle as far as arbitration and path to free agency and minimum wage. I am excited now for the owners to present theirs. Well, thank you so much for that thoughtful presentation. There's a lot to um, ingest there and understand. Uh, we have our own idea of the way we think we can make this game better. Uh, as you can see, there's the MLB owners uh, collective bargaining proposal. This is a benevolent approach. Next slide. The path to free agency. Retaining the six years of control is important for the owners. 
This is the main tenet of this business. It is what keeps this business profitable. The average fan wildly underestimates the cost of bringing to the majors that league minimum and future cost-controlled talent. For every one of those players that makes it to the majors, there's dozens that teams spent signing bonuses, salaries, training facilities, coaches of all levels and specialists, not to mention scouts to acquire the talent, large R&D and data teams that parse the largest front offices uh, and back offices in the history of the game are all being paid off of the profits from these players. Fans and media also largely ignore the cost of acquiring talent from out of the country. Dominican academies aren't cheap. Neither are maintaining relationships with Buscones, both on and off the book payoffs, acquiring information and intel on those players and handlers. You see the Fernando Tatises of the world, but you ignore all the Rosny Castillos that had to come before them to create that situation. So costs of cultivating control are large, as I mentioned. This is the main profit source. I think we can get players paid a little earlier, but not via free agency. Next slide, please. There's a list of the all the league uh, minimum wages, and you can see the NBA is at 925000 leading the group. The NHL is at 750000 coming in in second place. Third um, is the NFL at 660000 and and last is us, the MLB, 571000 This is something that we need to rectify, and we need to rectify it right away. Next slide. So our benevolent proposal, new minimum wage, and that would be bumping our minimum wage up from 570500 in 2021 to $700,000 in 2022, and including 5% bumps annually through the end of the term of this current contract. Ownership does good. That's a 23% increase over 2021. No longer the worst in pro sports. And it meaningfully adds to the MLB salaries without increasing the luxury tax limit. This is everyone across all league, as been mentioned in, in several articles and news stories, that us, uh, in, uh, including uh, Josh's uh, deck earlier, a large proportion of MLB players are getting paid the league minimum. So let's give them a significant raise. Let's, let's move them on up. Next slide, please. In addition, only the minimum wage earners are going to be subject to a pool in which they can earn even more money. Playoff teams are going to get awarded some extra money that they can hand off to these minimum wage earners. And we're going to incentivize teams by winning. So division winners will get a $10 million pool and non-division winners that make the playoffs will get a $5 million pool. It'll be totally at their discretion to hand the money out to the players who are minimum wage earners on their roster, which means you don't have to get voted for any of the major awards. If you were a seventh inning guy that majorly contributed to a team that went to the playoffs, great. You may get a chance to get a bunch of the pie. Maybe you're one of the few minimum wage earners on that roster. You may get a larger share just because you helped out a team that was winning. It incentivizes winning and incentivizes wanting more teams in the playoffs, which having more teams in the playoffs is a larger pool for everyone. Next slide, please. Arbitration. Arbitration sucks. We all know it does. Creates potential bad blood. It's a waste of time and resources. Think about how many lawyers are getting paid for these arbitrations that really don't belong in this at all. It's got many antiquated measures. The guy who hit a lot of home runs that no one wants to own anymore is getting these high uh, salaries in arbitration and ends up out there cut and no one wants them. 
let's just make it one number, okay? And that number is going to be a formula. And it's no longer going to be based on um, the, the pre, uh, prior presentations where we used F4 or something like that. Nope, we're going to use market salaries as our number. So in year one, a normal year one or super two year, um, the player would get 25% of the top 10 salaries at their primary position averaged together. In year two, similarly, they would get 35% of the top 10 salaries at their primary position averaged together. And in year three of arbitration, they would get 50% of the top 10 salaries of their primary position averaged together. To give an example of a couple of positions, catcher in year one, that amount of money would be a little over $2 million. In year two of arbitration, it would be a little over $4 million. And then in year three of arbitration, it would be about $5.5 million. For shortstops, a more in-demand position, that amount of money for year one would be a little under $4 million. For year two, it would be approximately $6.5 million. And for year three, a little over $9 million. This is probably going to cause some of the very top, top players to not get quite as much as they would have gotten in arbitration. But for the rest of the group, they're going to get a raise in, in, our, in, in what would have been arbitration. Two additional wrinkles. If you finish top 10 in MVP or Cy Young voting, you automatically qualify for 50% from the third year. So if you're going into your first year and you happen to uh, have top 10 voting in either the Cy Young or the MVP, you're going to pop up to that salary. If you happen to win either of those awards during your uh, what used to be called arbitration period, you'll get 50% of the top salary at your primary position. And that's it for our answer to minimum wage, getting players to free agency and arbitration. Jim, you're, you're muted. Jim. <laughs> Thank you. It's just uh, like a real meeting. Yes. <laughs> just like this. I, I imagine the Supreme Court, they meet themselves too. Uh, when it comes to the minimum wage, why is third place acceptable? Why not second place ahead of the NHL when it comes to minimum salary? Oh, because we're going to be paying more players that amount of money than what the NHL does. Okay. So, we, so we feel it's fair to... Oh. to, uh, to Usurp the uh, NFL, but not quite the NHL. We're going to be paying okay. a lot more players. So a lot more share is going to go there. Uh, then when it comes to the arbitration scale, um, yeah, I get the idea that it does cut down on some potential acrimony and bad blood. But when it comes to the scale, the, like say the four to six to nine million as an example, um, I still see the pressure that's currently an issue among uh, teams and that uh, like, say like the Eddie Rosario type player, where if they make 9 million uh, teams just don't want to prioritize that 9 million. Does that change the current? Uh, does it make an impact on, on the way players are currently valued? Does it make an impact on the way that players are just kind of churned through? And, and will that be, you know, I, I guess, should if a player gets booted out of like the arbitration gets a cut before he gets makes the third arbitration year, uh, is he still subject to like say uh, a lesser salary by another team? Does he can reach free agency faster if he's not paid that arbitration salary? Yes. Yeah, so if he's not paid the the prescribed salary, then he can reach free agency right away and get anything from anybody. 
I think it would be highly unlikely though that they wouldn't get this prescribed salary and then they could go out and get more. That might, I guess maybe that could happen, but I think in, and I also think in general by, by fixating it on the market salaries, especially the top 10 of the specific primary position, I think you're honing in closer on what a market value would be for a specific player with a skill set. Now there are going to be outliers, of course, players that don't fit and, and the Eddie Rosario, the CJ Cron types of the world are probably always going to be, guys that maybe are out there in in this world of MLB as free talent. But I think for, in general, it's going to get those earlier year players paid more. So the year, the old year one and old year two arbitration players are going to make more. I think year three, uh, you know, that'll be up for grabs. That may be the year where you're giving up a little bit of money, especially at the top end. I can see that being an improvement for say like the second RBR player who gets, you know, maybe like the CJ uh, Crone type who just gets, Boot it out before he makes six million because first baseman DHs are plentiful. But if he can be a free agent afterwards, isn't subject to say team control for the last two years. Uh, I can see that being an improvement over the current situation. Uh, the one pressure I can see under this is that it would incentivize owners to try to drive down the cost of those top ten salaries to avoid the outlier contracts that maybe raise the average, especially like say two or three, like say at shortstop the Seager, the Semyon, the uh, you know the Carlos impending Carlos Correa contracts could really sway that average to where there might be a pressure for teams to say like, Hey, let's take it easy. So the players coming up don't get so expensive or, or potentially expand the amount of years in which you're paying someone, you know, the contract you want to give them or the amount of money they want, you spread it out to a, a further amount of years. Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. And I, I don't think there's ever going to be a foolproof, plan here that can't be circumvented in some way shape or form and i and i think the only way to really uh put pressure on something like that is to improve competitive balance try to have teams trying all the time which i think is our, our uh, going to be our next segment but I, I think it's sometimes it's hard to litigate uh salaries with salaries it's tough to set a rule that's gonna bound everyone i think for uh what we're proposing here it's gonna get more younger players paid and as josh mentioned in early in his deck uh, you know younger players are making up a bigger portion of the group there's less people making it out into their 30s uh for for whatever reasons primes are getting hit earlier uh data-driven results are making you realize how that those players are less valuable etc okay we are taking a quick break during the mock trial for a word from our sponsors but more for the mlb cba negotiations coming up next on the Sox Machine Podcast. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. So out of the two presentations, Jim, what do you like from each of them that you think could be middle ground for owners and players association striking a deal? I like the flexibility of like the idea of the age cutoff. I think we see that already to some extent when it comes to the um, how much time a team has to add a player to the 40 man roster. If they're signed before age 18, they get five years to go up the minor league system. If they are signed after age 18, they have four. So there's already the kind of uh, precedent in place for teams to use a birthday, <laughs> a very specific birthday. Like they can be 17 years and 364 days old and sign under that and be fine. So we've already seen that precedent some somewhat. So I like that idea of, um, a player being called up by age 23, as long as there's some kind of threshold of to where like a player can be called up for two weeks or even like a month and then be sent down for two years. You have seeing that be gamified, especially I would say that seems to be a, a loophole with rebuilding teams that might not have, um, you know, real, uh, you know, I would say ambition in the first year to where like, Oh, we can spend a month with a 23 year old who might be overwhelmed and then put him in the minors for two more years and call him up and set that service time. So I think I like the idea of an age-based cutoff as long as like the, uh, the, the clock can't go cold. I think otherwise I think you get to that point where it's age 30, 31, you know, all roads lead back to, you know, milking those prime free agent years and trying to keep the costs down. Um, I do like the idea in theory of just like a higher um, second and third year salary. Like I think, you know, when it comes to the minimum earnings, when it comes to 650 to 750 in that range, that sounds fine. Uh, but the idea of a player earning 1 million, making their first million faster, I think might be something that makes it a bit better for the both, I would say the younger players, um, we, like I mentioned, Evan Marshall, when he's on our podcast, talked about how long it took him to earn his first million uh, for somebody who's been you know, through a lot working hard. They, I think that the second year, if not the third year, seems like a good time for the first million to be codified into a player uh, contract. Also, I think it does. It serves the purpose a little bit of a salary floor and that rebuilding teams can't be so cheap as they currently are. Like it doesn't make it, you know, it's not the equivalent of like a $60 million salary floor, but it keeps the minimum salaries from being completely ridiculous and talking about like 20 million payrolls. I think it raises it a little bit. So 
I think I like that idea for, and I, and I think that kind of bridges the two agreements in terms of getting that first million before the arbitration year. And then I think uh, when it comes to the fifth and sixth years, uh, Beef Loaf, what do you think of the idea of the franchise tag, that flexible where some players get a sixth year and some players don't? since that does try to meet you halfway towards having six years of control for some players. I actually don't mind it at all, uh, given that it is going to give, it, it's only really going to be used in situations in which you have a superstar. I mean, that's really the, the only time you're actually going to use it. And so I think it, it allows that player to get paid a bunch in a year and also allows the teams to retain. So I would be game for the, something like that, yes. Yeah, the player I was thinking of is like Juan Soto of the Washington nationals yep. when he's going through arbitration, I'm sure he's going to be breaking arbitration records uh, for the Washington nationals, unless he signs a new mega contract to stay in DC long-term. But if they can't come to an agreement and the nationals want to keep Soto one more year, that's fine. They just need to pay him as a top three outfielder rather than, you know, the qualifying offer today, which, he would easily decline a $19 million qualifying offer. But now there's a draft pick and the team that signs them or teams that may be interested, may be hesitant because they value their draft pick so much that they may not be able to afford. And it lessens the amount of teams that would be actually contenders to sign Juan Soto in free agency. And uh, from the player perspective, how do you feel about the, salaries during arbitration years or the what were arbitration years being codified to where it's 25%, 35%, 50%, taking away the ability of a player to negotiate his salary or argue for a little bit more? Yeah, I would think if you're butting heads in a conference room, that I would want to see those percentages change. Like that's where you would be negotiating like maybe 40%. 30%, 20%. But it does. Yeah. I think the players wouldn't probably buy into that. They would like to be able to maybe still stick with the system today, even though a lot of them is trial is file and trial it for teams, which you want. That's your number. That's our number. We're not going to negotiate. We'll see you in arbitration. And then they they got to be in the room and they got to talk terrible things about each other to to get the price down or decide who wins based on what they submit in, in arbitration. I mean, so my, I, my position is that at this point, arbitration sort of run its course and it's also almost uh, doesn't help the player as much as it used to in the past. As you mentioned, Josh, it's it's the teams will will stand there stubborn on their numbers and let let someone uh, go after those. I would I would think on average that probably does not help the players long term. So if you let's say if we combined our two proposals that mm -hmm. the first three years are codified beef loaf, uh, where it's 650, 1 million, 1.5 million. And then years four and five, you are entering into your arbitration structure, which remind me again, the second year arbitration was 35%. 35% of the average of the top 10 players at your primary position and then 25 percent for the fifth year no it, the inverse it, it was uh 25 for the first year 35 percent for the second year 50 percent for the the third year so in in real numbers 
shortstops in year one of arbitration would earn like four million dollars, mm-hmm. and a shortstop in year two would earn like six and a half million. That's year two of arbit- arbitration, or what was arbitration, and then in year three of arbitration, they would earn like nine point five million dollars, something like that. Yeah, I I think from a players' association, if you're bargaining, that we would skip arb one. And then ARB two would be the fourth year. And then ARB three would be the fifth year. We would need to negotiate what would happen for those players called up uh, age 23 or younger entering a third year arbitration, perhaps going even further to say 15%. uh, Or if it's 50%, then it would be like 65% of the top 10 for that sixth year. Because uh, I don't, I don't think the first year arbitration is going to fly for everyone to make everyone happy. Because while you're right about shortstop, shortstops would be making a lot more money. It's going to greatly impact like relievers and maybe second basemen and, and catchers and first basemen. Uh, so I, I think as far as negotiating purposes, if you're going to try to combine the two. I would skip ARB one and see if you can make our two and three work for years four and five. And then we would need to negotiate as far as that sixth year, whether it's restricted free agency or what that percentage would be. If you do have a player that you called up at age 22 or 23, for example, and you're entering your third, third year of arbitration. I can see a whole bunch of churn being uh, in bullpens. If say like, you know, the average, um, 26, 27 year old medium leverage reliever is being paid 25% of the, you know, 10 top closer salaries. I can see bullpens getting more expensive and some pressure to try to cut costs there. And a lot of players sent into free agency. So I could see some positions being very stable, other positions being more, uh, I guess cast into chaos than others. So I think that's why I think there is some benefit for having a human element of arbitration saying, uh, here's what this position is being played for players like you. Uh, and to me, it would seem like maybe just updating the measures so that players are valued more closely by arbitrators, what how teams are valuing them. I think I would like to see that uh, introduced first before completely casting the system aside, because I think there is some importance uh, for players. Cause I think, you know, maybe, you know, some relievers love to be paid 3 million, uh, you know, an automatic 3 million if they get there, but you know, there might be a case where, um, you know, there are just more stability for relievers and feel like there, uh, can be, you know, their, their careers can progress in one place longer if they're valued, say at a lower salary, but also like, uh, one that's easier for both sides to argue and agree upon. Jim, I have a feeling that even the jumps in um, the pre-arb raises, the minimum raises, mm-hmm. w- is going to create some sort of bouncing around of relievers. People are going to be uh, playing with the amount of time they have a reliever in the majors. They may cut a reliever after that second year because they're getting too expensive already. Because you don't want your, let's say, eighth or ninth guy out of the bullpen making, uh, you know, one and a half million dollars. So I, mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think there is positionally, it's it's hard to make them all fit. We did get this uh, fan question from one of our Patreon supporters, Mr. Law Hand, and they asked for both proposals. How do you implement timing-wise? Do current players fall into this format immediately? 
I was thinking B-Flow from my perspective, from the player's perspective, yes, this would be immediate. For your proposal, would it be immediate or would this be down the road? No, this would be immediate. And I think it works okay because there's no changing, like age changing or anything. And it's basically the same uh, the same format, just uh, changes in, in pricing. So I, I, I would say yes, I would, I, would, I would start it right away. So do you think there could be middle ground found, Jim, between our two proposals? Yeah, I think we've covered a lot about it, just that the idea that players need to be paid more. I think the sticking point would be, um, you know, the the fifth and sixth year and whether players could get to free agency after five years or whether it's a hard six in uh, Beef Loaf's plan. And uh, just, I guess, how players are paid and like to say the third through fifth years but otherwise it seems like there's you know the idea that um you know more players are getting paid more players are getting to their first million dollars faster and it makes it harder for teams just to completely give themselves entirely to young cheap players who might not be that good and just kind of throwing away years because of it um it might actually make teams be a little bit more considered and who's uh making those you know million dollar 1.5 million dollar salaries all right, well, let's continue to competitive balance. And I this time we'll reverse. B-Flip representing the owners will go Thank first. You. Thank you so much. Uh, next slide, please. Competitive balance. So the owners offered a draft lottery solution. It was hated by everyone, players, fans, media. The owners offered a top 100 prospects related solution that was also hated by everyone, players, fans, and media. So where do we go now? Next slide, please. Realignment, okay? Now that the MLB is gonna have a universal DH, there's no reason to have the old traditional AL and NL leagues anymore. We have a chance to realign these teams and do it in a way that isn't often thought of. Usually we're thinking about more about geographic locations to realign uh, the various divisions and leagues, but that's not necessarily what I'm doing right here. What I want to do in the new benevolent MLB is realign the teams by market size. And this way, we're going to create more competitivism. We're going to have the rich teams play against the rich teams more often. We're going to have the less rich teams play against the less, less rich teams more often. In this plan, I'm going to change the old uh, AL, and that's now going to become the royalty conference. And the old NL will now become the steerage conference. The, uh, the AL East, as a royalty conference, is going to be the Yankees and Red Sox, so they'll stay together, the New York Mets, the Washington Nationals, and the Philadelphia Phillies. All large market teams are going to be playing against each other. I want to keep the unbalanced schedule, so this way you're playing your division a lot, and so we can really magnify the effects of the competitiveness in these divisions as you're gonna be facing off against teams of similar market sizes. The royalty uh, central division is gonna be Chicago White Sox, Chicago Cubs, Toronto Blue Jays, Atlanta Braves, and the Texas Rangers. And the royalty west is going to be the Houston Astros, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, San Francisco Giants, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the Colorado Rockies. So these, for all intents and purposes, are what I've earmarked as sort of the bigger market teams or the 
maybe the cutoff line and the half, the bigger market teams. There's some movement in between, and it's it's possible that I'm making some mistakes at the very tips of these. So you at home, feel free to reshuffle uh, them as you see fit. Now the steerage side, this is these are the less wealthy teams. The steerage east is going to be the Tampa Rays, the Baltimore Orioles, the Miami Marlins, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and the Detroit Tigers. The steerage central is going to be the Milwaukee Brewers, the Cleveland Indians, the Minnesota Twins, the St. Louis Cardinals, and the Cincinnati Reds. And finally, the Steerage West division is going to be the Seattle Mariners, the Oakland for now, potentially Las Vegas Athletics, the San Diego Padres, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and the Kansas City Royals. In our minds, the best way to create competitive balance is to put teams against other teams that they feel they can compete with both monetarily and on the field. And I think this does a lot of it. We've, we've tried to put in rules and hand things off to people, but really let's just keep it amongst the teams and make them play and earn the prizes, such as being able to get extra prize money for the playoffs, money from the playoffs to give to their, uh, to their young players. We think that this is the best way to create additional competitive balance. So go ahead, Jim. Well, I have a, uh, when looking at some of those teams, I know you mentioned that you know, there might be some quibbles with one or two, like I'm thinking like San Diego in steerage when they have the fourth highest payroll, that seems probably like currently. Uh, yeah. yeah. But I would say like, you know, maybe if you just swap them with Colorado and, and put Colorado in steerage, that solves that problem. Mm-hmm. One thing I wonder is would it like, I'm thinking like a team like the Detroit Tigers currently in steerage and, you know, have been in many years, but also they've shown the ability when, everything's clicking. They're at the top of their competitive cycle to spend big and sustain those salaries and sustain large payrolls. Um, But it would seem for them to not get carried away with exactly just how well they're doing in order to stay down among the lesser teams. Uh, You know, my concern would be like, unless there was some reward, I guess, (laughs) for being in that uh, royalty conference where like there's a little bit, you know, I'm not sure what like bigger, maybe a bigger, uh, chunk of the national TV revenue or something like that to where like it would, you know, it might perpetuate big market and small market teams, but also might without any kind of incentivization to try to make it into the royalty group that they just might be content to play small market, even if they aren't. Yeah, that's a reasonable concern. And I, and I assume that there could be some floating between the groups but not nothing related to wins and losses necessarily. So it, it would be more uh, related potentially to local economics. So let, let's say, I mean, there are cities in this, uh, this United States of ours. Las Vegas would be an example that grew tremendously over the last 15, 20 years. As cities grow or decline in, in size and economics, then you could see some movements between the group. And I, and I agree with you. There, there's, uh, I mean, even St. Louis is not a big market. But they mm-hmm. spend enough and they have competitive teams and they they really, for their size, people come out and, and support it. So it's it's tough finding the perfect balance there. But I think setting up a balance where you're not always, <laughs> you're not, you're not the, you know, you're not the Pittsburgh uh, Pirates kind of bear. You, you should have a chance now. There's no reason that you don't have a chance to spend some money and actually compete and make a playoff. 
Okay, that was my chief objection. The Steerage East might be the least competitive division of all time entering 2022. <laughs> Hold on. Can I bring that? I'm going to bring this up again. Pull that back up. Okay. Tampa, Tampa and the rest. Tampa win 140 games. <laughs> Easily. Easily. As of now, starting now. Uh, yes. It would be a bad year in 2022 for oh the rest. Oh, gosh. Like you're in the 2001 Seattle Mariners are in trouble. Their record is going to go down. Tampa Bay, Baltimore. Baltimore, Miami, Pittsburgh, and Detroit. Like Detroit's got a chance, you know, but yeah, that's a lot of wins for Tampa. That's a lot of wins for Tampa. Detroit's a playoff team. Moving, <laughs> they, moving down to their they playoff could. team for sure now. Finish, finish in second and they'll <laughs> finish definitely second. Be. make the playoffs. You also got to put a dollar in our guardians jar for every time someone calls them by the wrong team. Oh, my, my mistake. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, I, I honestly, I was reading the names, trying to not say the football names. I was like, please don't say Pittsburgh Steelers <laughs> or something like that. I really was. I was like, I, I should have wrote the entire names out when I did this. <laughs> All right. So I will share the players association's perspective as far as competitive balance. The way we look at the crux of the competitive issue at Major League Baseball really stems with the Major League Baseball draft. For example, the 2021 Minnesota Twins finished in last place in the American League Central. They were 20 games behind the Chicago White Sox. Yet, the Twins were closer to winning the American League Central then they were earning the number one pick in this up year in this upcoming Major League Baseball draft because both the Baltimore Orioles and the Arizona Diamondbacks only won 52 games. They had 110 losses each. And looking at the number one pick, as far as what the amount of wins it takes to get the number one pick. In the last 11 Major League Baseball drafts, the number one pick only had more than 60 wins just three times. The average record of the team that gets to earn the number one pick is a 56 and 106 loss record. The current Major League Baseball draft system rewards franchises to lose as many games as possible, which defeats parity, defeats the competitiveness level, of the league itself, the current Major League Baseball draft system does not work because it rewards teams to fail. And when teams fail, that impacts the overall quality product on the field and it impacts those fan bases. It's not fair to the fans and it's also not fair to the Players Association because those teams are also not spending money in free agency in attempts to improve themselves. So the first proposal that the Players Association has, and we are seeking immediate comment from the owners, is eliminating the Major League Baseball draft altogether. The 2021 Major League Baseball draft allocated over $265 million in bonus pool money. We look at it as eliminate the Major League Baseball draft. All 30 teams get an equal bonus pool, of $8,858,980 to sign prep players and draft eligible college players. Now I see comment from the owners and their thoughts on eliminating the major league baseball draft. Well, if we could 
put that cap a little lower, maybe we'd consider it. Then we'll save some money. But otherwise, <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. I don't. I think that's kind of a non-starter there. Uh, completely uh, eliminating the MLB draft, um, unless the cap uh, individual caps were lower than that. All right. So again, the owners have already proven that they want to continue spending less money on players. So entering our second proposal is our version of the Major League Baseball draft lottery. Teams not reaching the postseason, which will be 16 teams this upcoming season because both parties agree moving forward with a 14-team playoff, seven teams per league making the postseason. The 16 teams will be part of the draft lottery. Each team, regardless of their record, will have one lottery ball in which is drawn randomly. And the drawing will begin with pick 16 all the way down to pick one. For example, I have randomly drawn out the the Major League Baseball draft order for the first round. The current draft order has the Baltimore Orioles with the number one pick, the Diamondbacks with the second pick, the Texas Rangers with the third pick, and the Pittsburgh Pirates with the fourth pick. Randomly doing a random draw, the new top four, the number one pick would go to the San Diego Padres, the number two pick would go to the Kansas City Royals, the number three pick would be the Los Angeles Angels, and the number fourth pick would be the, the Detroit Tigers. The Orioles, who had the worst record or tied for the worst record in Major League Baseball, would have the 13th pick in the first round, and the Diamondbacks would have the eighth pick in the first round. We view this as an opportunity for the teams that try but barely miss the playoffs. Having this random draw, in a way, could reward them with a higher draft pick in the first round. And for the teams that purposely tank, that purposely lose, and put a stain on today's game, they could be impacted as far as their draft position and Really what we're aiming for with this draft lottery is to encourage all 30 major league baseball teams to make it into the postseason. Now, continuing with the draft, some other changes between the first and second rounds of the draft, we want to introduce performance compensation picks Two picks rewarded to the teams in the American and national leagues that had the most improved record from the year before. So for those two teams that have won more games or the most games from the season before, we're earning additional draft pick between round the first and second rounds. The teams that have the rookie of the years will earn an additional draft pick. MVP will earn an additional draft pick. The Cy Young will earn additional draft pick. Yes, there is an opportunity where one team sweeps all these categories and they have four additional draft picks between round the first and second rounds. We view this as a good thing from the players association because that one particular team enhanced how competitive they were on the field between the second and third rounds. This is where we currently have a compensation round between rounds one and two, where the small market teams earn an additional draft pick to help them be competitive, we would drop that between the second and third rounds. We also want to introduce trading of draft picks. for So for teams that are going to try to compete, but they are lacking in talent, and if they would like to, they could obtain more draft picks with teams trading draft picks for other players during the season 
or they could also trade draft picks on trading day. As we have seen with the NFL and with the NBA, this can encourage great engagement from fans and more attention will be drawn to the major league baseball draft by allowing teams to be able to trade draft picks. And it can also help teams as far as with their rebuilding efforts, instead of just obtaining players that they may have very little interest in obtaining to add to their farm system, they can stockpile draft picks. And if they still have one of the worst 16 records in baseball, that is fine. They will have those picks randomly drawn. But if they also acquire picks from teams that are also within that top 16, they will also have those draft slots as well in the first round. And that is our proposal as far as to increase competitiveness in Major League Baseball is greatly greatly adjusting how the major league baseball draft works have a, a couple of questions slash comments on the well <laughs> i like the idea of abolishing the draft and just having i guess that would make it the domestic market a lot like the international market in that you have teams all spending around the same amount of money and just being i, I guess it would open it maybe to the same kind of malfeasance we see in the national international market where players are tried to be signed at age 16 versus age 18. Do you see the same kind of pressures there with every team being limited, just how much, how many corners they have to cut. And you have like John Coppola. How much of it would be players would go to just preferred places they want to live. So you would have the big marketplaces really scooping up talent because the difference between uh, getting a, a $4 million signing bonus and a $2 million signing bonus to live in city X and play for this uh, particular franchise might not be that much to them. I'd be interested to see like the choice uh, amongst the players. Yeah, Southern California player like living at home and saving money <laughs> or exactly. expenses. Yeah, um, yeah, I could see that. Uh, the one thing I you know I think about or I come around to is when it comes to the fan experience. I think the idea is that you don't want September wins to be counterproductive. You don't want to see like the White Sox when they're rebuilding, have a thrilling win over the Yankees. Uh, you just, you know, just uh, four runs, the ninth off or oldest Chapman and feel like, damn it. They just ruined their draft position with this exciting win. Like that's kind of counterproductive to the whole spirit of competition and such. Uh, so I think there is, you know, a, a lot of merit in opening up the lottery to, you know, if not say the entire team, like I would say at least 10 to where you just feel like that one win didn't, uh, scuttle our chances of drafting, you know, uh, ahead of a certain team, just because we happen to be a little bit better in a certain year. I, I think the one thing that I keep coming back to is like, you know, seeing the Padres picking towards the top. Uh, when it comes to the small market, big market teams, one, I think, truth is that big market teams, like I'm thinking like the Yankees when they missed the postseason, is that their worst years are not as bad as like the Kansas City Royals worst years. Like, so it seems like there is some benefit or some help when it comes to the draft, giving those smaller market teams a chance to draft higher at least one year. Like if they have to take it on the chin, if things go poorly, uh, it seems like a nice, uh, I, I guess, lifeline for the smaller market team is getting that top pick. Whereas if it were completely cast aside and they had to draft 16th, if they didn't have that Bobby Witt Jr. Uh, coming around the corner, if they didn't have a chance at drafting that player, I can see that being a little bit 
of, of something that perpetuates the gap between the big market and small market teams. So that's something I think where maybe when it comes to market sizes or something like that, a team can avoid lottery, yeah, their pick being thrown lottery at least for one year. I, I think you'd want to avoid the repetitive tanking, the, the drumbeat of Orioles-like seasons to where they just get rewarded for being crap after crap after crap. But when it comes to just, you know, I do like the idea of most improved record meaning something. Like if a team goes from, uh, you know, I guess that could incentivize like total sandbagging to where you win 37 games, then you go to 60 wins and all of a sudden <laughs> you're still, you know, terrible, but better. Um, you know, as long as you had some kind of like maybe minimum win threshold to avoid the total perversion <laughs> of the system. But uh, I, I think, you know, there should be some reward for a team that went from winning 60 games to winning 75. And so I like the idea of uh, that being in place. I think the one thing I can see is when it comes to MVP and Cy Young voting is that it does fall into the old trap where teams like the Yankees and Red Sox and uh, Dodgers could accumulate draft picks just because they were signing great players. And that happened to be when the, the old uh, qualifying offer system where they had type, type A and type B free agents and they would just trade for a player who's going to be a type A free agent in this last year, just because they'd get that extra draft pick. They could pay him even if he wasn't that great. And then, you know, acquire that pick. And in this case, like Bryce Harper, they signed Bryce Harper to a contract and they get the extra pick. I can see that perpetuating that gap. On the other hand, it does incentivize a team like the White Sox to maybe signing that Bryce Harper <laughs> and saying like, <laughs> you know, we're not just going to be paying a guy, you know, in his, uh, you know, mid to late thirties more than he's worth. Uh, in the meantime, while he's having those peak seasons, maybe we can also pad our farm system a bit. So I, I do think there's some merit to that that maybe avoids that that trap where just you know the big market teams benefited because they had those great players. So I do like those ideas and, and think there's some merit. Um, when it comes to the, I guess, one thing I'm curious about is if you could trade draft picks, if you kept the you know most variables in place but could trade draft picks, how much would that change things? Yeah, how much would how much would that solve a lot of the problems of uh, just teams having the tank because they can't accumulate as many draft picks as in one year as possible to speed up their rebuilds? Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe that's something if we get ever an opportunity to ask like Kevin Goldstein of Fangraphs, who knows the inner operations of using the Houston Astros, for example, during their rebuilding years to contending years on the value that the the monetary value that they place on prospects, right? Because if you kept the major league baseball draft as is with the bonus pools, then it's easy to know what the value of that pick is because you have a bonus value tied to it where it's, I, I, I find it very difficult for my players in the minor leagues right now. And maybe you guys disagree in placing monetary value, like how much money that they are worth because they're in the minor leagues, you know, we're not seeing wins above replacement in the minor leagues. We're not, you know, we, we don't have that war value for them in the major leagues to kind of figure out where they would be salary wise. That's where it'd be difficult. So if a team's like, listen, we really need an extra $4 million in our draft pool. Well, instead of trading prospects over, I can trade you my first and second round picks. That should be the $4 million that you're seeking. Yeah, I, I think there is some, you know, just the ability to make losing years 
more lucrative, I guess, more lucrative in terms of draft capital, I think would be uh, a way to avoid the cycle of three year intentional losing streaks. If they could, you know, maybe compress that into one year or two years, get the, get the heavy lifting done in a bad year, especially for a team that had a bad year by accident, like the Diamondbacks, like they weren't supposed to be as bad as they were. They tried. They've added some salaries that just it collapsed on them spectacularly. So if they could take that year, take a better draft position from having that one bad year and then add some picks to it, would that be enough for them to stop, you know, feel like they're in better position in the NL West? The other thing I was looking at when I was looking at uh, Beef Loaf's um, divisions is wondering when looking at, like, say, the Diamondbacks and the Rockies, the, the plate of those teams and maybe like the, uh, the the Orioles on the on the other coast is just how much would a balanced schedule affect those teams. Like when you're watching the Orioles uh, realign their left field because of all the homers that Glaber Torres hits over it. Uh, if they could avoid playing the Yankees that many times, how much does that change their competitive outlook to where they avoid tanking? Like how much does like a balanced schedule where mm -hmm. every team is in play, make it harder to project those wins in the general pecking order of the standings. Like we've seen in, uh, seen in previous years to where like a team looks at the NL West and says like, Nope, maybe in 2025. <laughs> or, or potentially rebalance the schedules kind of like how the NFL does. The NFL has you pitted against the team of, of the same position in the division from the year before. So if you finish third, then your games out of the division are against those other third place teams. Maybe mm. you do that in a grander scale and, and, in uh, and you're playing the other last place teams or the other fourth place teams or however it may be. I, I like that. I think that's a good idea. I I really do. Common ground. <laughs> there we go. Uh, so back to your, your first question you were asking as far as eliminating the Major League Baseball draft. We are currently seeing 14, 13-year-olds signing to college commitments or making verbal college commitments for baseball. So they're already being attracted already by big college baseball programs. And with possible sponsorship agreements that comes now with college athletics, it is a tricky ground to operate in. Uh, if just like the international signings, it technically is not legal or it is against the rules of major league baseball to have announced signings prior to the international signing day. Mm -hmm. We still see it happen. So this is something that will have to be regulated by the leagues themselves and teams would have to incur fines or other forms of punishment, maybe loss of draft pool money. If they are breaking the rules and they have this secret handshake deal with the prospect who is 16 years old, and they already know that they're going to get $6 million from team X in two years. But yeah, I, I don't think that idea will fly yeah. <laughs> with the owners. Because I, I could think... see, like, you know, if you had an international draft, I could see that being one of the benefits of it is that it does make it harder for, or like make it pointless to have those illegal connections to 13 and 14 year olds. If like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because you just might not get the opportunity to pick that player. Right. And I, that's why I do think we're going to get an international draft. There's just too much risk. I do not expect major league baseball owners to know the nitty gritty of how their franchises, international operations work. And I am sure the people that they have hired to report to them directly are lying 
on how their international operations are working. Uh, I believe every team is breaking the rules and I would not be surprised if every team is maybe breaking some type of international law or even U.S. laws uh, to, to get these deals done uh, well ahead of time, especially when you're looking at these teenagers. Uh, so that's why I do think an international draft is coming. It mitigates as far as the risk. But you know, just talking freely right now, I really do think we need some significant changes in Major League Baseball's draft because if you do have some type of lottery and you put the teams that are purposely tanking and aiming for 100, 110 losses in a season, if you put them at risk that your grand strategy may not work uh, and make them sweat, I'm hoping that's good enough to convince teams, you know, even though we're a terrible team, guys go out there and win as many games as possible. We don't have the talent to win a lot of games, but I'd rather do that than field the worst possible team. And fingers crossed, we get to the magical number of 110 losses. So we have the number one pick. That's, I do think the league needs to move away from that. And what do you say to that, Beef Loaf? Totally agree. And I, and I think in general, teams probably agree with that as well. I mean, having even just a little more competitive team has got to draw more at the gate. Uh, it's got to be a better television. I, I would assume that having these tankathons are kind of really bad, uh, even locally for TV and, and radio ratings, regardless. So I, I would say yes. I think I think the, upping the level of play for the bottom of the group is going to be important um, in the competitive balance discussion and in, in getting uh, uh, young players paid more quickly. So a, a couple of things before we sign off here. We did not address the salary floor. The reason I didn't bring up the salary floor beef loaf is that I think that's dead on arrival within the owner's ranks. Like I cannot imagine Cleveland ownership, Tampa Bay ownership, Pittsburgh ownership agreeing to any type of salary floor. Do you? No, I agree with you. And I think that in order to agree to it, they would require even more uh, corporate welfare. And I don't think that the big, the big shop owners are going to allow that and, and push that down there. The secondary concern with the, the floor cap idea, I think is that you're required to at least submit some portion of your financials like they do in the NFL to, to a group to determine what these numbers should be. Cause it's generally based on hard financial data. And I don't think MLB owners are really keen on doing that. They can accomplish the same thing by putting a luxury tax limit in there that they don't have to submit this type of information for. So I would assume they're going to keep it close to the vest and that none of that stuff ends up flying. And I didn't address as far as the, the top end, as far as an increase. Cause I, again, I don't know within the ownership ranks on, on how they feel comfortable with it. Maybe some teams are fine with the $210 million uh, before if you, well, then again, you have the Mets that have already completely blown by it. Right. And the Dodgers continue to completely blow by it. And they don't care. So I find the whole collective bargaining tax, as far as what the thresholds are, like that's an internal battle. Like I, from a player's perspective, yeah, it'd be great if it was 240 million because the top tier teams are going to continue to spend and we know they like spending. So that gives a better opportunity for some of our representatives to get as much money as possible. But it's really the lower tier i think the last i looked before the lockout ends and we have another free agency frenzy we've got seven teams with a payroll of 75 million dollars or fewer like 
And you got some teams like Cleveland that has a payroll right now below $30 million. And the national television deals easily pay for their entire payroll without even having a single fan attend a game. Like that's, that's really problematic, but I don't know within the ownership ranks beef loaf on what they could possibly propose to the players association that they would get buy-in from all of the owners. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I do think it'll sail up from the 210 where it's at now. I'd be shocked if it ever made it up to 245 where the players want it. I think they do want some sort of Steve Cohen control. They want a Steve Cohen limit and some way to kind of stop him, at least for the group of owners that did not want him <laughs> part of the group. But uh, otherwise, I, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. The, the, the bottom tier is the tier that they need to pull up and, and get spending more. I, I'm not sure that the, uh, you know, the, the top section other than the Mets, that there's a huge delta there. Teams will continue to spend up to it, but those teams are a small group of teams, three, four, five teams at most. Yeah, I would say it'd have to go up a little bit just because if players are being paid more at the lower wages, you're like the, the lower service times that, you know, the cost of the minimum cost of a roster rises. So you would think that the uh, top end, you know, for teams already spending, already committing those big salaries in years ahead would, should have a little bit of room to accommodate those rising salaries at the bottom. Yeah, so I guess as far as our common ground, when it comes to minimum salaries, we have found ways for players to get paid more money in the first three years, which is good for them. And I think that's what they're asking for. Really have to figure out, and maybe that's where the issue is right now between the two parties, years four through six on how those years work. But as Jim pointed out, some guys are not even making it to year five with their teams because the teams view their arbitration total to be too much money and they just let them go and they non-tender them and hooray, they're unrestricted free agents, which is what the Players Association wants, right? More free agents before age 30. So that's one way of accomplishing our goal. Uh, just thinking about that now. And then uh, the competitive balance. Beef Loaf recommending realignment, which I do think is coming. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be the rich league and the poor league. <laughs> I would love it if it was, but I, I will see. <laughs> That's steerage. I'm going to be laughing about that East division for a while. It's just, <laughs> oh man. It's, it's got potential to be bad. Uh, Tampa but we could run two teams and have them both make the postseason. <laughs> <laughs> the triple A team. Yeah. <laughs> Split squad. Uh, and uh, we agree making changes to the Major League Baseball draft, but we'll see if a lottery does pass uh, for the teams. Uh, hopefully they are able to trade draft picks as it, it makes the draft more interesting, but it's another way of teams to possibly rebuild as well. Uh, if they feel like they're not going to be able to be too competitive within a season. I found this activity to be a lot of fun, Beef Loaf, and has really maybe sit down and really look at as far as the issues. So I feel a lot more comfortable from my perspective representing the players and what the players could possibly look for. Uh, how did this experience help you looking at it from the owner's perspective? I really enjoyed it because I think, I think sometimes you have to pick the other side of the argument and really figure out where things are at. And I also thought the exchange of ideas – and Jim being able to nitpick at them and question them and, and pull them and push them in certain ways, I think we're not seeing a lot of that out there in the uh, the marketplace of ideas, really. You're seeing a little bit of it, but not not too much where where uh, folks like us, fans, are just dreaming on, okay, what could it look like? What, what might this look like? And, and what are our ideas? So I think it was good to tease them all out and play with them and, and 
yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, to me, I thought the you know the variables like trading draft picks and also like playing with schedule, playing with the divisional alignments, just having more either randomness or introducing more randomness into just how teams can get to 85, 90 wins rather than having to beat the four teams ahead of them to get there, you know, survive, you know, four stacked teams, like having more avenues to get to that win total, I think is something worth playing with, even though like I, I tend to like the divisional structure. I like the rivalries. I like knowing, you know, what the Royals are doing, what the Tigers are doing, having tabs in those four teams. I think it makes it interesting as a fan, kind of like a college football conference, just knowing uh, the other teams ins and outs. And I think if you have to cast a wider net, that makes it harder. But I think it also introduces some opportunities to maybe make it uh, make tanking less apparent to teams as a, a valid strategy, even before you even get to the draft picks being introduced and, and massaged and manipulated to uh, have an idea of just exactly what to reward and what to punish. All right. Well, Beef Loaf, man, it, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for hopping on and doing this. Appreciate it was a fantastic you idea. Uh, you could watch Beef Loaf and our friends from the 108. They're going to be going live on Thursday, January 20th, 2022 on their YouTube page, youtube.com slash from the 108 sometime around 8 p.m. Central time. That's correct. Our counterpart, our good friend, Patrick Nolan Penals is going to be their guest uh, for this week's podcast. So I can't wait to hear the poker stories and you getting underneath <laughs> Penals' skin and how you beat him out on some hands. <laughs> Make sure to bring some of that up. We're trying out a 108 game night since we are, there's no baseball, not much to talk about. So we'll be doing a draft and we'll be doing some other uh, fun stuff. And Penals actually inspired this draft that we're going to do. Uh, I'm not going to mention what it is. So you have to tune in to check it out. All right. Excellent. Definitely will. So again, that's on their YouTube page at youtube.com slash from the one Oh eight. And if you're already not subscribing to their channel, definitely subscribe to their channel. They produce great stuff for those that are watching. You can see as far as the screen, but for those that are also listening to the podcast version, if you are a longtime listener slash watcher or a new person to Sox Machine, and if you enjoy your work, think about helping support us over at patreon.com slash Sox Machine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website, and they get the first opportunity to acquire any of our new Sox Machine swag. We have monthly plans starting at just $2 a month, or if you sign up for an annual plan, you save 9% off the monthly price. So if you are interested and you would like to help support us, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine and sign up today. And you can follow us at Sox Machine on Twitter. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. And you can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Alongside Beef Loaf from the 108 and Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for watching and listening. Mm -hmm.